Hey there, welcome to the conversation. Thanks for joining us. I'm Brooke Thomas. Bart is taking care of us in the DJ booth today, huh? Did you hear that coming in? It was nice. All right, we've got a great show for you today. And today we're gonna talk about a lot of women's issues. We're gonna talk about voting, we're gonna talk about voter suppression, we're gonna talk about how women behave in the workplace and what we do wrong and what you can do to help us. There's a lot going on in today's show. It's jam-packed, but it's gonna be a good one. So let's get right into our very first guest. Our very first guest, her name is Inse Ufat. And Inse is the executive director of the New Georgia Project and its affiliate. And which is New Georgia Project Action Fund. And the New Georgia Project is a nonpartisan effort to register and civically engage the rising electorate in Georgia. And we have a lot to talk about. And say, how are you? Good evening. I'm doing really well. How are you, Brooke? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Let's get right into it. So tell our viewers about New Georgia Project. So New Georgia Project was founded, one of my co-founders is Stacey Abrams. We are a civic engagement organization. To date, we've registered over 400,000 young people and people wow. of color in all 159 of Georgia's counties. I like to tell people that we are like a tech startup inside of a civil rights and voting rights organization. So we build mobile apps, we leverage technology and culture and anything that we have have access to, uh, to create super voters uh, and a more representative democracy here in Georgia. And that's, that goes into, um, you all have this, this is part of your plan. You reach people where they are, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, when you think about voter participation uh, in our state, um, when you think about what sort of black outreach looks like, or what youth outreach looks like, or even what like rural outreach looks like, um, it is oftentimes an afterthought uh, in campaign world. And so, you know, people come with uh, their souls to the polls activity in October, and you know, trapping the vote and rocking the vote. Uh, once school starts back in September. September, October, uh, right before campaign season. But we believe that in order to create super voters and people who vote in every election which they're eligible, um, and to have a robust democracy where underserved and underrepresented communities are fully participating, that these are conversations that we need to have year round. So we're in barbershops, we're on college campuses. Like I said, we build mobile apps, we're building video games. Uh, again, uh, we want to change the culture of governing, uh, of governance. Uh, we believe in a co-governance model, a government of the people, by the people. Like those, that's more than just a notion to us. And this is important for multiple reasons. Not only because look, it's important to vote, but also the right to vote is overwhelmingly being suppressed in Georgia. And this is happening all across the US, but I think Georgia signs a special light on it that everyone can take a look at. Can you talk a little bit about the level of voter suppression in Georgia? Absolutely, um, and I think part of it, where I'm from, they say um, a dying donkey kicks hard, okay. right? And so, um, when you look at the state of Georgia, we are less than five years away um, from Georgia being the first state in the Deep South with a white minority. Uh, people of color, African Americans, Latinos, uh, and AAPI Georgians are about to make up the majority of residents, and soon will make up the majority of voters. But when you look at our elected officials, in a lot of ways, they are completely unaccountable to the communities that they represent. And so we have what is known as a pale, stale, 
male uh, majority in the Georgia State Legislature. And that is where the rules are being rewritten uh, so that they can maintain power. Uh, and so the writing is on the wall. They are looking at the same census data that we are looking at. So um, you know, when we launched in 2013, 2014, at that time, um, top of the ticket races so between basically the successful Republican and the losing Democrat was an average between 200 and 300,000 votes. And then, but when we started there at the time, there were over 1 million African Americans, Latinos, Asian Americans, people of color in Georgia who were eligible to vote and unregistered. So nearly four times the number of people that were required to swing any election. And that means from the top of the ticket to the bottom of the ticket, Obama lost Georgia by 300,000 votes in 2012. So when we fast forward to 2018, after the New Georgia Project and other organizations have been seriously focusing on changing the electorate. You have as a candidate Abrams who came within 45,000 votes of becoming America's first black woman governor. And that is in light of the 2 million people of color that have been purged from the voter rolls, the 10% of Georgia's polling locations that had been per, that had been closed under Brian Kemp's tenure. And again, in light of a lot of sophisticated voter suppression schemes, she still came within 50,000 votes of becoming again, America's first black woman governor. And so that is just an example, just one example of the changes that we are seeing in Georgia and the changes that are happening because of this serious approach to civic engagement, the sophisticated approach to combating voter suppression. And you know, I wanna touch on something that I hadn't even planned to ask you this, but it's something that you just said. And I think it is probably the most fascinating thing about Stacey Abrams race in Georgia is the number of new voters the number of people that she got registered, the number of people who came out to vote for the first time. This happened when Barack Obama ran for president. And I think there's like two sides today when we're talking about presidential candidates. I think some really truly believe and a lot of people really believe that in order to win, you have to go over to Republican side and you have to pull some of those people over. You have to do interviews on Fox News. You have to go, you have to um, be the person who those people will like it, the never Trumpers, you've got to grab them, you've got to get them. But I always think, is it not possible? It seems so possible and people are doing it to win by just getting down and talking to your base, talk to the forgotten members of your base and you can do it. Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's a failure of uh, to, to think strategically <laughs> about growing your base. I think that people tend to lean into, um, you know, stereotypes, <laughs> stereotypes about particular demographics, right? Black people don't vote. Uh, Latinos aren't citizens. Young people are unreliable. White women lie uh, about who they're going to vote for. Uh, AAPIs are secret Republicans. Like there are stereotypes that exist. Um, yeah, and and you, but they should not inform your strategy to for they shouldn't they should not inform a successful campaign strategy. Um, I think that what you saw with a Barack Obama and what you saw um, with a Abrams candidacy is Andrew a, Gillum as well. 
yeah, to, to dig in. Um, listen, people don't want diet Republicans. They don't want diet conservatives. They want the real thing, right? And so trying to sort of waffle as opposed to growing your base, expanding your base, protecting the electorate, um, putting your ideas out in sort of a, a, an economy of ideas and letting the market determine um, you know, which ideas are successful and which ideas we want to invest in um, without cheating, without uh, manipulating the rules. Um, when, those, when those conditions, when those circumstances exist, uh, we have a more robust democracy and quite frankly, a more progressive um, a sort of uh, a more pro progressive group of people who are helping us govern. Okay, let's get down. Let's talk about voting because another thing you mentioned like that should not inform. Another thing that probably shouldn't inform us as much as it does polls, but we're gonna talk about them anyway because there are a couple that are out this week that are fascinating and I don't often get to have um, these specific conversations with someone like you. So um, Joy Reid brought up a, a poll from Essence and Black Women's Roundtable and she introduced it calling black women um, the backbone of the Democratic Party. And I was like, you know what? I'm not mad at that because the black women are indeed the party's most loyal voting bloc, absolutely, overwhelmingly. Absolutely. And um, there was there's a poll and it showed 26% of black women voters right now are undecided. Uh, number one after that, which would be number two, I guess it was with 25% Joe Biden, then Kamala Harris with 15, Warren with 12, ending with Sanders with 10. The numbers were a little bit different when you went from 18 year olds to 35, but still the biggest, the number one was undecided. Um, and I started to think, you know, why is that? If you have been so loyal for so long, is it because black women are tired of being the backbone and want to be catered to more of, you know, in front? I don't know. Right. What, what's your take on that? My take is that there are a lot of candidates, mm -hmm. uh, and black women are tend to be sophisticated voters, yeah. uh, sophisticated consumers, uh, and so given again that that we are uh, there's a marketplace of ideas, and candidates are still making their case, uh, that it makes sense that because there are still a number of credible candidates uh, who have not bowed out yet that. 25%, uh, 26% of black women being undecided does not feel strange to me. Yeah, It doesn't feel odd to me. Um, again, given how sophisticated uh, black women are when it comes to voter participation and civic engagement in general. You know, um, we are sophisticated, you're right. Um, no, <laughs> another poll out today, a new CNN poll, and it was, a, it was a, basically about Trump's approval rating, Trump's support. And 39% approve the job Trump is doing, I think 55% disapprove. But breaking that down even more, they, break, they broke it down with like racial groups. And you started, I think it was in the 50s, um, the, right. the only group that was the majority in favor of Trump's job, the job he's doing, it was white men, and then it went down from there all the way to Stop. black women. <laughs> the Trump's approval rating among black women is 3%, according to this ball. And it's hilarious because it's like we may be undecided, but not about that. Yeah, not about <laughs> that at all. I mean, if the question is, is he doing a good job or is he doing a bad job? I, I don't think that there is, there, what black women aren't waffling. Right, who are those 3%? Uh, about, yeah, pardon? <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't. Oh, I said, yeah. where, who are those 3%? I want to know who those 3% are. Uh, I, 
Listen, I don't want to be insensitive. I there. I just finished saying that Black women have a sophisticated political analysis, and so those three percent should be heard. But I mean, again, I think that that is um, Black women are also the most civically engaged sort of subgroup in our country. So they vote at higher rates. We certainly saw that in 2018 in Georgia, but we also saw that in 2016 when there wasn't an African American on the ticket at all, um, and so. You know, one of my greatest frustrations is, you know, the amount of attention that, for example, is paid to for the Obama Trump voter, right? They represent such a small percentage of our electorate. And I'm not saying don't study them and don't understand, you know, their decision making. What I am saying is that I would like to see a research agenda that understands or that endeavors to figure out what is it that black women know that given the failures of the Democratic Party on the national level and on the state level, given you know the limitations of voting and how voting doesn't necessarily lead to sort of the liberation that some of us seek, that black women still do it. And I think that that's a worthy sort of, it's worth researching. Again, what is it that black women know and why is it that they're committed to participate participating in our elections, participating in our democracy, even when it fails us. Inse Ufa, thank you so much. Inse Ufa with the executive director of the New Georgia Project. Thank you so much for being here with us this evening. I can't wait to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, this is wonderful. All right. That's it for just the first part of the conversation because you know we're coming back right after this and we're gonna have Professor Joan Williams. She wrote a fascinating piece and our producer Asher actually found this and I'm so glad she did because it is fascinating. I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation, stay tuned. Hey there, welcome back to the conversation. I'm Brooke Thomas. We are now joined by Joan Williams, professor of law and co-author of What Works for Women at Work. Good evening, Joan. Thank you for being here. Good evening, Brooke. Delighted to be here with you. Thank you so much. You wrote a piece for the New York Times titled, How Women Can Escape the Likeability Track, How Powerful Women Know How to Flip Feminine Stereotypes to Their Advantage. So how can women escape the likability trap? And and explain for our viewers who may not immediately get it, what is the likability trap? The likability trap is that often um, being likable is optional for men, but mandated for women. Mm But if women are too nice and likable, often they're, they undercut their authority. So you kind of have to walk this tightrope between being likable enough um, so that you don't trigger backlash, but not too likable so that you're considered a lightweight. You talked about, uh, you called it uh, gender judo. What is yes. that? What is that? Well, virtually every um, truly successful woman who I've interviewed, and I've interviewed a lot, um, basically what she what they do is they look at femininity as kind of a toolkit, mm-hmm. and they choose something from that feminine toolkit that they feel comfortable and feels authentic to them, and then um, they use it in order to try to escape that likability trap. And so they often embrace actually a feminine stereotype um, that typically holds women back, but they flip around the momentum of that stereotype to propel themselves forward. 
there was this. There was a part in this that stood out for me. It, you wrote uh, more than forty years of research by social scientists have shown that Americans define the good woman as, like you said, helpful, modest, and nice. Meanwhile, the ideal man is defined as direct, assertive, competitive, ambitious. Where do we even begin? How do we even begin to fight this? Yeah, I know you don't. You don't actually get ahead by being um, a helpful, modest, and nice. You get ahead by being direct, assertive, competitive. Right. Um, and these things have changed um, relatively little. If anything, this stereotype, these these feminine mandates to be what's called communal, helpful, nice, uh, modest, they've actually gotten stronger, if you can believe it, in recent decades. And so, you know, women should not have to engage in this gender judo. Totally not saying that they should. But I think given that these stereotypes are not attenuating in many circumstances, women should at least know what works for women at work, which is very different from what should work for women at work. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, you also broke down how this affects us in salary negotiations. And uh, women who negotiate as hard as men tend to be disliked. Yes. That's horrible. So it's horrible. Yes. And you, you, what do we do about that? Well, again, what the research shows is that um, that gender judo works. So you um, say that you're negotiating because it's important for your team. Um, you say that um, your mentor stressed how important it was for you to negotiate salary and also for to ask for a um, a uh, mid-year performance review. Um, so uh, basically, what you're doing is in, fa- in, in embracing that communal stereotype. I'm negotiating for my team, not my for myself. I'm following the advice of the great white father, who's my mentor. Um, so you're embracing those feminine stereotypes, but you're doing it in order to do, to, be, to be able to negotiate um, for the salary you deserve without triggering the backlash that often ends up. Um, sometimes, worst case scenario, you don't get the salary and you end up starting off with a cloud over your head or creating a cloud mm-hmm. over your head like, oh, this person is difficult. Yes, yes. So, so- it's, um, it's, it's not a pretty picture. And you know, I keep asking, how do we all do this? But the trick is not alone. It takes no, a workplace it's really, change, right? It takes. It's really important. And we, in fact, have a whole web page that shows organizations how they can make simple changes, like changing their hiring, changing their performance evaluations, changing how they make assignments to interrupt this kind of likability bias and other biases um, before they start or to correct them immediately after. Um, There's also really interesting, I also do a lot of research on how the experience of gender bias differs by race. And this is a little bit different often for African American women, mm-hmm. where they often have more room to behave in assertive ways. But then there's a really sharp drop off if they're seen as angry. Wow, that's not a, you know that that's not a good career move for an African American professional, whether they're a man or a woman. Yeah, I'm like and I have so not experienced. It's complicated. That. Like the uh, the idea of more room to be assertive. I'm like, well, who is living that life? Because that was going to be. My, I'm like, where is that? Because because I think a lot of times, um, if so, think about it. Like I think this. I was thinking about this when I was reading your piece. 
you have men are assertive and direct and women are nice. And I think a lot of times when it comes to women of color, even if they are just as nice, sometimes it's perceived angry. Absolutely. Sometimes, um, sometimes also when women of color don't behave in deferential ways, uh-huh. um, they're seen as angry. Even yes. if they're not angry, they're just not deferential. Um, and I've recently been studying Latinas, and Latinas are often called things like um, feisty yeah. or sassy. You think what sassy means? Sassy means just you don't know your place in the hierarchy. I mean, a more open discussion of racial hierarchy would be hard to imagine. Absolutely. I know it's like, you know, if you think about calling somebody sassy, don't. Yes, exactly. That's a good, <laughs> right? That's a very good rule. I like that rule. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Um, and so you were also wrote, you know, we should work to make sure that both men and women are rewarded for displaying empathy or a willingness to put the common good above self-interest. And I think that's great. Not only should women be able to be direct, but men should embrace being nice. These are different, right. these are different elements of a good person. Mm-hmm. You know, a good person yeah. knows how to ask for what they want and what they need in a direct fashion, direct but respectful. But a good person also um, it displays some um, people skills and empathy and actually cares about other people. And to sort of siphon off one thing and say one group of people with one shape of body should always be direct, assertive, competitive, and the other group of people should be doing all of this emotional work around the office and always be nicey-nicey, that, who's that working for? That's not working really for anyone. Exactly. Uh, so what advice, uh, what kind of advice do you have to start this process like in baby steps? You know, what should people Sorry, be doing? Sorry, I didn't hear that. Oh, I said, you know, what what advice do you have to kind of start this process in baby steps on a micro level? I think for there's two different ways. One is for an individual woman. Um, and if you if you fear that you're gonna get backlash for being assertive, the first thing to do is to be yourself. Try it. You know, hey, it might work. Mm-hmm. Because although this likability bias is common, it is not universal yeah. at all. So step one. Do what comes naturally, you be you. But if you find that you um, are getting pushback on the grounds that you're difficult or prima donna or um, uh, or something of that nature, kind of a likability ding, then look into femininity as a toolkit and figure out what feels comfortable. For And don't choose deference, by the way, deference doesn't work. Um, so for example, what I use, um, first of all, I, I dress pretty femmy these days. I figure, well, why not? Um, and then also I use empathy because I have the ability to connect with people very quickly at, at kind of a deep level. And I like that. I think mm-hmm. that's an undervalued part of femininity. And so I feel very comfortable embracing that um, in order to um, address backlash if I should find it. I love that. Professor Joan Williams, professor of law and co-author of What Works for Women at Work. It has been a joy speaking with you today. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. All right, that's it for the conversation today. We'll be back tomorrow at the same time. Post game is next, and I'm pretty sure it is Anna and Emma, right? Is it? It's an AMA, exactly, I thought so. That's gonna be good. Stick around. I'm Brooke Thomas, thanks for watching.